Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this week's UFC main card. Paid Bloody Elbow Podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content, if available, at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your hosts, Bloody Elbow Fight Analyst Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Viva section with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host, as always, Connor Rebush. We're here once again talking about this week's UFC card going down at the Rogers Arena in Vancouver, British Columbia, UFC 289, headlined by a title fight between Amanda Nunes and Irene Aldana. And, uh, yeah, wow, this is not... um, not stock a pay-per-view sh- card. Stock shit. It is not a pay-per-view card. Yeah, it's bad. It um, like Nunez Aldana. I'm I'm glad that we're not just getting Nunez Pena three. I'm. I mean, I Phil was clamoring for Nunez Pena three, and I was like, listen, there's such a thing as uh, a setup and a punchline, and we got it. You know, yeah. the, the yeah. story of that fight is done. Uh, the extremely basic question that Nunes failed to answer the first time around was successfully answered in the rematch. Let's do something else. That being said, I am sympathetic to people who complain that this isn't particularly interesting because um, that's the case with most of Nunes' title fights. It's like, yeah. okay, another one, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the unfortunate thing, too, that, like, if I imagine Nunes getting the fight she would love to have here. I imagine a 10 foot away one shot at a time kickboxing match. Yeah. You know, I I imagine something along the lines of like Shevchenko against, uh, Oh, Nunes. (laughs) Yeah. Shevchenko (laughs) against Nunes. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't like, have to search too far for that because yeah. we saw it, and it was yeah. exactly that fight. And uh, I think Aldana will probably let her have that fight, much yeah. more so than Pena would. So there is that downside. Yep. Um, and that at least Pena would have enforced some kind of mess on her. You know. Yeah, Pena is. You know, she there's a pathological need in Pena to like create a wild fight, right? That, uh, you know, both led to her absolutely mauling Amanda Nunes one time and getting mauled a second time because no matter whether it's succeeding or failing, she can't take her foot off the gas, yeah. So and then there's the rest of the card, which yeah, and uh, then there's frankly the has cool fight. Right. One, one cool really fight. good fight, a and couple of interesting ones, and then that's it. Yeah. Realistically, what we would have here is the standard UFC fight night if it were just Oliveira versus Dariush headlining. Yeah. And then 
now, we, but we have that plus a title fight on. Top. I, I once again, I mean, I, this question is going to get old. Um, not before the cards do, but like, how are they doing this? What do you mean? It's the UFC. They have most of the good fighters. Yeah. How did they manage to put together a pay per view like? We 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 still have to assume most of the time when we see these dog shit fight night cards, ah, uh, you know, at least they're going to stack the pay per views. What you're going to follow last week's card, which yeah, there were some fun fights, but as a lineup, it was merely fine. Yeah, you're going to follow that with this as a pay per view. Where are the good fighters? What is going on in the modern UFC that we have gotten? 2023 has been like 75 percent this. Yeah. So far, what is happening? I think a big part of it is honestly, they are more chained to a lack of flexibility than ever. And with that being the case, fighters are also being more picky than ever. Like, if you get, if you become a top shelf talent in the UFC, if you become somebody that is making even just like $100,000 a fight, 75, you know, a a reasonably talented, your Ilya Topuria's, your whatever, you know, um, Dominic Cruz's of the world, a, a top shelf talent, then it behooves you more than ever to hold out for just the perfect spot because that's all the leverage you have is like oh no i want to fight on this date against one of these two or three people and if i don't get that fight then i'll wait because i know if i do just take whatever fight the ufc throws at me then i put myself in more jeopardy than is worth you know, then then not then then would be worth the the chance of waiting and sitting out and just saying, you know what, I'll just wait for the, a better opportunity. Yeah, we're seeing that more and more with and our the top UFC talent. is is yeah yeah I think that is part of it, and the UFC is more invested in far more invested in just getting the cards out than they are in <laughs> getting good fights on them. And so, yeah, and and now their cards like who would have guessed the fighters do not have that much leverage. Because they're just a bunch of weak little individual actors. Yeah. Who get, what was it last year? 13% mm-hmm. of the UFC's total income as their yeah. pay. Yeah. And on the flip side, too, because now the UFC's really invested in this idea like, oh, pay per views have to have title fights. We're doing these pay per views in these places. Yeah. And we have these target markets that we're trying to hit they're more and more bound to be like, oh, okay, you know, so like, you know, you have somebody like Amir Albazi, who's like, I want to fight for the title in Abu Dhabi in October. Yeah. And that, he's going to wait for that. You know, he might not get it, but that is his big opportunity to wait for. Yeah. So so he's going to wait. And the UFC doesn't really, you know, they're not doing the, 
oh, we're going to do, you know, a, a fight island thing. We're going to spend a month in Abu Dhabi now, and we're just going to put on five events, and we can put you on one of those cards. Yeah. They're not doing that kind of flexibility now. It's all just like, oh, we went one here for one fight or one card, and then we're back at the apex. And, you know, your big-name fighters, they're learning more and more. Like, we don't want to fight at the apex. Yeah. So it's just getting harder. I think it's getting actually honestly harder for them to structure cards. They know it too. I mean, you know how yeah. like uh, no matter how aloof you uh, you affect to be, when somebody successfully draws you into an argument online, they have that's a small victory for them. Right? Yeah, yeah, it is always can... the 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 troll always wins when you engage. Yeah, and um, Mick Maynard feeling the need. Yeah, <laughs> to lash out online about how we're mean to him and we say his cards are bad. He knows they're bad. Yeah, I just want to. Which of these cards are bad? Please, army of psychophants, come and uh, and and console me for the shit job I can tell I'm doing. He knows. They know what yeah. good fights are. And I think all to say that to say yeah. what he said two weeks before this pay per view yeah. lineup. He knows. That's why he felt the need to say it. He felt attacked, and the attack hit home. Yep. And I think it's honestly like, I, you know, the UFC's done a great job matchmaking for years. Honestly, they really have. Yeah, because they had all the leverage, and they really made the most of that, for sure. Yep. And I think now we're getting to a point where it's just like the lack of flexibility for them is making it... They have actually worked themselves into a place where they are so bound by like corporate requirements and so bound by scheduling requirements and they're put they're putting things in so solid like, oh no, we need this kind of stuff for this and that kind of stuff for that. Yeah. And they're just filling their roster. Part of this too is they're just filling their roster with so much brand new Dana White's contender series talent that nobody knows or really yeah. cares about, and a lot of whom wouldn't be fighting at this level if they hadn't managed to win one fight yeah. at one time, you know? Yep. And when you have a bunch of those people, you are, you're just going to create a lot of filler, and you, you, you're, contra you're contractually obliged to, you know? Yep. You got Adam Fujit on your in your promotion you brought this guy in and you're like oh yeah you're gonna get multiple fights here you gotta give him the fights yeah and so anyway we, we can't anyway. spend the whole episode complaining about it but like no, as it, as usual like when it needs pointing out it needs pointing out and this is not a good card this is not i mean and like this would be a fine fight night card it's a fight night card but yeah. you're uh, asking for 80 dollars for it yes all right. Anyway, Amanda Nunes, Irene Aldana. More than $80, because, of course, you need to pay for the subscription to ESPN Plus for the privilege to buy the pay-per-view. That's right. So, so. anyway. Um, yeah, you know, as we were saying, like, um, not a particularly compelling. I mean, Nunes-Pena 1 was not compelling until it happened. Yeah. Suddenly it became interesting. All Every fight has that possibility. And uh, I, I think in some ways, especially so with a fighter like Amanda Nunes, because um, as you were sort of talking about before, like with the Shevchenko fight and everything, what Nunes has not technically 
developed very much at all since her early days. She really, really has not. She has not really gained any new depth as a technician. Um, What's interesting, too, is she hasn't really gained any depth as a metagame strategist either. As well, a she's, she's gained some depth in that she used to have none. Yeah, yeah. There's what a she, calmness there that when she was early in her career, yes, she did not used to have. That was something she built. Like, that was an ad- adaptation she made like five years ago. Yeah, it was when she became a champion. She was like, okay, um, I can't always just like be panicked that I have to crush my opponent before they crush me and destroy yeah. myself in the process. What she learned to do is when to do a lot less yeah. just to preserve herself and extend the fight. This is made possible by the fact that she is, um, especially now that Valentina moved down in weight, clearly the best athlete in the division. Mm-hmm. So it allows for her to make really straightforward adjustments. And then along the same lines of sort of like taking the chaos out of the fight, um, she has also learned to identify when her opponents have massive glaring weaknesses yeah, and to exploit them. And because this is women's bantamweight, um, most of the opponents have those. Yeah. Although it's worth noting that Juliana Pena, you know, brought, they, she brought the core, the, the core horror of Amanda Nunes's classic yeah. meltdown game right back. Yeah, yeah. She just did what uh, none of the other opponents could bring themselves to do. Like, it's not impossible that anyone could do that. If yeah. you are willing to step in there and stand in the pocket and exchange shots with Amanda Nunes, Chins um, up the... yeah, you're, you're going to make her brawl, you know? Like, yeah. But you go in there knowing that, like, yeah, Chris Cyborg tried to do that. Yeah. And literally just lost the brawl almost instantly. Like it is a very much not a safe way of fighting Nunez. It it will lead her to destroy herself. Mm-hmm. It will. You know, that is like a yeah. certainty if you can get her into a brawl that lasts for more than six or seven minutes. Yep. But it may very well destroy you. And given her athletic advantage over, again, basically everyone in the division that's it's very likely going to go better for her than it does you. The only exception to that golf of that physical golf is probably like Jermaine Durandamy, who is also a better technical striker. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yeah, like you just don't get to have good things at women's bantamweight. And with Durandamy, she literally just didn't know how to wrestle. And so, I mean, it's a complicated thing trying to like evaluate Amanda Nunes because yeah. Um, she shouldn't be getting away with such simplistic game plans. They are really yeah. completely one note. Even the rematch with Pena. Yeah, she just went southpaw, and then Pena was just like, what? Yeah, it was a ludicrous overcorrection. Like, it's yeah. such a broad stroke approach to solving uh, to solving the basic issue, but it worked. And that is the, that's the thing with Nunes. Like, um, probably she has not developed because she simply has not had to. Yeah. There's, there's no challenge. The, 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 the thing she had to adapt in the past was just be calmer. And she did that. And, and that's all she's needed. Yeah. That's all she's needed. That be calmer. Try needed. Southpaw. Yeah. One hiccup against Pena where the calm, the calmness, thin veneer of calmness was stripped away. And then she just found another, uh, again, like laughably broad, adjustment 
that Pena being a women's bantamweight fighter had absolutely no idea of how to deal with. Yeah. Um, and uh, if I think of all the previous challengers, then I would say Aldana is probably most comparable to Jermaine Durandamy. Mm-hmm. I think she's probably a little better grappler. She's not really much of a better wrestler. She's definitely a better grappler. She's definitely like part of the problem with Aldana's wrestling is that she she's too willing to to get taken down. I mean, yeah, she, she has come she has come up in a gym that clearly taught her, oh, you don't need to worry about getting taken down. You can fight off your back. Right. So yeah, she's she's more comfortable, more dangerous on the ground. Um and harder to work on the ground than Durandamy, but she's she's just as easy to take down. I mean, it's close at the very least. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is compounded by the fact that um, she is not on Durandamy's level physically. Durandamy yeah. is very fast and very powerful. She's a good athlete mm-hmm. uh, who just happens to be very technically limited. Aldana has similar technical limitations broadly, but is much further away from Nunes physically. Mm-hmm. And stylistically, she's not really willing to be as aggressive as, Dur- as Durandamy either. Yeah. Well, um, the, the, a big thing with Durandamy is if you give her time and space, she will sit down on long strikes and snipe at you yeah. moving forward. And, yeah. you know, really kind of, you know, she'll do her best to... She has no issues going for it. <laughs> going, Yeah, going for it and, like, knowing that she can... If she's on the front foot, she can also fall into the clinch and work you over in the clinch. Yeah, which she did to Nunes, at least until Nunes decided to turn those clinches yeah. into takedown attempts. Whereas Aldana, every time she moves forward, that's the point where she starts getting plugged. Yeah. Like, her game... Is entire her all the comfort in her striking is built to be on the back foot. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it largely comes from her size. Like she feels she can keep people at bay. There is a sort of uh she she has worked on this. I mean, she has gotten more fluid, she's gotten more mm-hmm. aggressive. Mm-hmm. She's she started to uncork those pretty combinations she throws earlier uh in fights. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if this, if there's any chance, any time in her career to decide I'm going to come forward and put hands on somebody, this is the time. Yeah. But, um, so far it is still, there is a hitch in Aldana striking. She is one of our rote fighters mm-hmm. who sort of needs to kind of preconceive of how she's going to deal with being in the pocket before she lets her hands go. She is not a super fluid striker, at least until she has gotten a couple rounds in. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I think when she's on her back foot, then she's, you know, I, I guess then maybe the roteness is less notable because she yeah. can pick a target knowing that most of her opponents stepping in are going to be head hunting with one twos. Yeah. And, and they so, also, and the size thing. I mean, they have yeah. to cover a lot of distance to get there. It's just a much more comfortable position from which to kind of feel the openings. Yeah, because then you see her, like, throw a hook to the body or something. You're like, oh, yeah. wow, that was really well chosen. But then you think about it, and you're like, oh, well, she can actually just sit back and be like, oh, when this person steps in with the next one, two, yeah. I'll, I'll throw a hook to the body. Like, yeah. I can, and, she can pre-select but, and look more natural with that. Yeah. And she is a well-schooled boxer. I mean, technically, yeah. like, her, her punches are very pretty and yeah. well-thrown. 
Um, there's a lot to like in her game technically, but she doesn't have the kind of feel, the aggressive feel for fighting that somebody like Jermaine Durandamy does. Not going to, I find it, it's possible. I hope she does it and takes that risk and commits, but it's, it seems unlikely to me that she is going to press Nunez and Nunez being also one of the bigger women in the division is going to have an easier time getting to her from further away. Of course, she has the low kicks and the body kicks, which she will no doubt go for as often as possible. I expect those will work against the very planted Irene Aldana. And she's got the wrestling, which is basically, again, like Jermaine Durandamy, a more aggressive, more effective, more dangerous striker than Aldana was able to work Nunez on the feet at several points and it still could not win her the fight because Nunes recognized correctly that there's just one way to take that element of the fight away. Yeah. And she went to it and it, it won her the fight. I mean, she gassed in that one. She wasn't looking comfortable. She still did what she needed to do to win. That is the story of the Amanda Nunes championship run doing what she the, often the bare minimum, but doing what she needs to do to win. And yeah. uh, I don't think it's that going to be that difficult for her to uh, find that plan. I will say, matchup. I will say though, if she does gas, yeah, wrestling Irene Aldana, Aldana will is more comfortable getting taken out of her fight than somebody like Jermaine Durandamy ever was. That's true. She's she's she is scrappy and in a way that maybe Durandamy is not. Yeah. And it seems more likely to me that Irene Aldana, Irene Aldana would be there in the fourth or fifth round. Sure. If a new, if Nunez is tired, the, 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 the big worry though, I mean, the big problem there is just that like you go back literally one fight for Aldana and the narrative of that Macy Chasen fight was that Aldana just got easier to take down as the fight went on. Yeah. And she, that, she was trying to get more aggressive. Yeah. You know, she wasn't enjoying how the fight was going, and that did bring that scrappiness out of her. And what it led to was this not particularly athletic big woman with a lot of lower body real estate to look at just getting taken down easily. Yeah. It and just that, seems like, yeah, exactly the same out is there as was, as was present in the Durandamy fight no matter what small psychological differences there are between them. Yeah. The only other X factor really to me is, and I don't, I don't know what Anthony Smith's deal is, <laughs> but he was recently talking about how he just wants Amanda Nunes to retire because she's got a great family and seems like she could do other, you know, like spend her time doing other things. And like, I don't know why that would come up with him for like Amanda Newton. Like Anderson Silva had a great family for all those years. Yeah. I, I he just kids I just, he would pull along with him everywhere and all that. Like I suspect this is because she's a woman. It might be. I don't I mean, know. At the risk of accusing Anthony Smith of something. I'm not even saying he's being bigoted. I just think no. whether he realizes it or not. He probably has that feeling because she's a woman. Yeah. That's my, that's my guess, my gut feeling. Either way. Could be wrong. What I will say 
is that Nunez has talked a lot more about how, like, about getting away from fighting and being with her family and, like, struggles with camp and, like, organizing her life outside of fighting more Mm -hmm. in a way that does, it does call more into question as she gets older, like, how much more does she want to do this? Oh, I mean... It was pretty clear to me that a big part of why the uh, Pena's approach shocked her so thoroughly was that she didn't care. Yeah. I yeah. thought she was she, I think she was just kind of over it and had stopped taking her challengers seriously because none of them could test her. Yeah. Or come close to beating her and Pena surprised her by just being a madwoman. Yeah. And clearly that she came into the rematch extremely motivated to get that back. But uh, does she need to lose again before she yeah, uh, attains that motivation? Yeah, it makes you wonder how much that motivation is going to ebb and flow. And yeah, it does. Yeah. Might fall off entirely. So mm-hmm. there is that aspect of it. But, you know, as other people have been coming to realize and noting, you can't really even cite like, oh, well, you know, Amanda Nunes is getting old. Like Irene Aldana is older yep. than Amanda Nunes. Yeah. So. Who knows? Maybe Aldana will be real fired up by the fact that her teammate just won the title and fly, at flyweight. Yeah, I, I, you know, a fired up front foot Aldana who takes the fight to Amanda Nunes. Yeah, there's a fight to win here. It's, yeah, that's it, really all I hope for. I hope it's interesting. Yeah, Aldana's a much, much infinitely, infinitely cleaner, better, stronger puncher. Than Juliana Pena. No question. No question at all. There is a fight to be won here. It's just, it's not going to happen if it's done on the front, on the back foot, circling away from Nunez. I don't think I would be very surprised because we have seen patient Nunez just pick at somebody from long range. And the wrestling is a huge problem. Like you can't go out there and give three takedowns up to Macy chase. And it really and is the wrestling to me. I mean, I do think as the fight went on, given her size, it is possible that Aldana could trouble Nunez even without having to press forward. But uh, yeah, I, I think the wrestling is just the crux. Like if yeah. she can't stop the takedowns uh, and really she should be able to like Nunez isn't even that good of a wrestler. No, she just goes for it when she needs yep. to. And Aldana is a worse wrestler from all, all prior evidence. She's so. just willing to, she's willing to pull guard. And that's at yeah. this point, that's an instinct. Like it was there in the chase and fight. And it's an instinct that, you know, it's like Dustin Poirier and jumping on the guillotine. Like it's worse than that. I mean, yeah, it's, it is just a bad, but I mean, I, I'm just saying that like, yeah, yeah, yeah. From the, the point of like, even faced with somebody like Habib Nurmagomedov and yeah. everybody in the world knows like, this is the point you need to never do that. Just Dustin, th- yeah. like just never. It's hardwired. It's still just, it's, it's hardwired. He's just going to do it. And most likely if uh, Nunez shoots in and at all runs Aldana back or turns a corner yep. at all, just starts tipping her down, Aldana will likely fall to her back and try to get her hips up. Yep. The moment she feels herself losing balance, she goes into guard mode. Yep. And that's, yeah, it's just a bad instinct to have. 
Uh, Nunez opened at minus 360, is currently at minus 308. Aldana opened at plus 308, is currently at plus 260. I would not be surprised if those odds keep getting closer. I just can feel it in the air that people are prepared to take the underdog chance on Aldana in this fight after seeing Nunez get upset it or get get the upset loss against Pena. It's, you know, it's a, and have her talking about like, oh, is this my last, you know, I don't know how many fights I have left. I don't know. I might retire soon, you know, talking about stuff like that. Even this week, some quotes coming out, like, would you consider the going to the WWE and stuff like that? And her being like, yeah, I don't know, whatever. If they offer the right contract, I can feel that these odds are going to get tighter. And, uh, I, I don't want to tell the I don't want to break any dreams for kids out there, but I would be absolutely shocked if the WWE needs Amanda Nunes. But uh, anyway, I'm still gonna pick her. That brings us to a lightweight bout: Charles Oliveira, Benil Dariush, and. Um, Man, is Dariush just crazy enough to make this work? That's really kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one thing, Dariush is uh, that is not crazy about him at all. He uh, he is willing to honestly one of the few grappling specialists in MMA as a whole who is always willing to pit his grappling skills against those yeah. of his opponent. And that's what I'm saying is, is Dariush. I don't think that's crazy at all. The guy's a beast on the ground. Like, no, he is. He is. More grapplers like, should do this. More grapplers should not have a shitty kickboxing match just because they think their opponent is, I don't know, on par with them or something. Dariush is a monster on top. He is incredible in scrambles. He is a great, great positional grappler. And that is not a crazy idea to have at all against Charles Oliveira. In fact, the crazy thing is how many opponents of Oliveira's have refused to grapple with him on the based on the sort of illusion that he's going to instantly finish them and they have no chance. We know Oliveira can get out grappled. We know he doesn't like being pressured. That applies to the ground just as much as it does on the feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're just going to take this over then, is what you're saying. Oh, sorry. Go on. Yeah, you go. You go. Whatever. <laughs> what, whatever. No, no, no. It's fine. I got it's a fine. point of view, but uh, but that's fine. Obviously, that's not the reason we do a show. It's the Zane Hour. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm glad you're finally getting getting the <laughs> thing. It's only been a decade. Um. <laughs> no, it is your go. Sorry, I just don't think is he crazy enough? Yes, but I don't think the grappling is crazy. I no, I know saying. grappling isn't crazy, but it is. It is one of those things that like fighters, you know, it, it's the whole like the delusion. You have to have the delusion, and sometimes the delusion is actually the reality. Yeah. Where, like, yeah, is is Benil Dariush foolhardy enough to think that he's a better grappler than Charles Oliveira? Because he actually might be. Yeah. You know? And that, that makes it not foolish. But he still needs, like, and he, I think he has this. He needs to be that crazy. Because from a striking perspective, I think this fight would look a lot more end up looking a lot more like the Justin Gagey fight in a hurry. Which is to say that Dariush, when he goes forward, gets 
really wild. He's good at being determined. He's good at being, uh, you know, using his strikes to get into collar ties and to get in close and to land big, hard shots and things like that. Yeah. But 90, it feels like, I mean, 90 is probably too too high a, a number, but 75% of the time, a Benil Darius striking exchange is the willful opportunity to create a 50-50 striking exchange. He commits. That's when Darius is striking. He does not mind fully committing to an attack. And Charles Oliveira is actually really insanely good at outstriking people who commit. Yes, but I would add that an important element, Justin Gaethje was one of those people who didn't want to grapple. And that's why I say is it, you know, that, that that's, that's why I'm talking about like Benil Darius being crazy enough to do more than that. Yeah. Because I mean, let, just, let us go on. Yeah. If, if he just goes out there and strikes with Charles Oliveira, he's got a good chance of hurting Charles Oliveira. Oh, absolutely. Charles Oliveira gets hurt a lot, but, uh, even more than, Gagey and more than other fighters that Charles Oliveira has beat yeah. in that kind of war. Dariush, there's the commitment doesn't create an easy flow until he's connected to somebody. Yeah. I mean, he's not as athletic as Gagey. You know, he's yeah. not as fast or coordinated. He has a harder time recovering from the awkward positions he puts himself in. He's yeah. also just chinnier. And he's just chinnier. So he's been knocked out several times in his career. My my feeling in general would be that Dariush walking Charles Oliveira down with wild strikes is probably less likely to hurt Charles Oliveira right away and give him a big chance to jump on him than it is to get Dariush badly hurt first. Yeah, maybe. I, I maybe, yeah. May, maybe not, but Oliveira is like he is really well attuned to the kind of striking war that Char- that Dariush is going to press on him, and most of the people that have successfully hurt him in that war are faster and harder hitting than Benil Dariush is, and more coordinated. I I think Benil Dariush I will say is pretty goddamn hard hitting. He is, but compared to Gagey, Poirier, and Chandler, yeah, I, I don't think he's that. I don't think he's that far from them. He Dariush is like the definition of heavy-handed. Yeah, he, he doesn't he doesn't hit you like a shotgun blast going off. It's more like getting hit by a truck, but yeah. like a, a, a truck going only twenty-five miles an hour. But like it'll still flatten you. Yeah, there is a weight to his punches, oh, partly yeah. because he commits so aggressively. Yeah. He throws every ounce of his weight. Uh, and really gets good torque. I mean, I, I think that the thing you can't ignore is that every one of these fights from Charles Oliveira, he has gotten hurt first. Oh, yeah. yeah. He gets knocked down, and then people just don't want to grapple with him. And if, if that, th- that is a distinct possibility here. If that happens, Darius is going to grapple with him. I have no yeah. doubts about that. He's going to and- jump on top of him and start to squeeze the life out of him if not try to knock him out right there while he's on his back. Yeah. And I think that that's a fight that Darius very likely wins. I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, it really is just. Yeah. 
a question to me of does he get to it or not. Yeah, and like, yeah, I'm, I'm he's saying he's less powerful than these other people. Is not like saying I'm not trying to say Darius doesn't have the power. Yeah, yeah, I get I, your your point is well trying to gauge that thin line yeah. of Darius has a brawl with Charles Oliveira. Does he get the knockdown and follow it up? And that you know. I'm I am not a thousand percent certain on that because it's it is slower and it is a little less powerful than people like Poirier and Gagey and uh Chandler. You know? And yeah. I you know, not not to then compare him to uh let me see here. Where I gotta pull my pull my stats up here, but not to go back and compare him to people like uh, Jim Miller or, you know, I don't know, uh, Nick Lentz or those Jared Gordon or those kinds of people. But a lot of people have tried to rush Oliveira with blitzes yeah. as well that did not have quite the insane elite speed and power and they did not get the chance to drop Charles Oliveira first. True. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think what likely happens here is um, like, it would make sense for Benio to pressure. Uh -huh. Clearly Charles prefers pressuring, but because Charles prefers pressuring so strongly, he's probably going to get to do it. Cause Benio is not, he's not 100% a pressure fighter, right? Yeah. Like he'll, he will do it. But if the opponent is insisting, he's all too happy to go on the back foot. He will work his jab. He'll move his feet. He'll look for uh, counters, mm -hmm. um, which is, he's pretty good at finding. Actually. I think yeah. Darius he is maybe commits all the time. And he's, he's one of those fighters too, who he is locked in eyes, locked in on his opponent at yeah. all times, which means that he, he's less likely to get hurt unless he's entirely surprised. Yeah. And, and, and he also, like, gets his focus tightens when he gets hurt. And his focus so tightens when he gets hurt, yeah. When he, when he doesn't get knocked out cold, which, again, is the real concern here, I think, yeah. that that does happen. Um, when he doesn't get knocked out cold, he gets hurt. Like, the look in his eyes after uh, Drakkar close hurt him mm -hmm. zeroed in. Yeah. He, he, was, he, he, was, he was not thinking... Sorry, he he just he wasn't thinking I have to survive. He was thinking no. you're going to try to get me, and that will be your undoing. Yeah, um, that is his mentality. Yeah, it, it's the chinniness. I mean, the thing is, is I, I'm going to pick Benil Darius here as confidently as I think I possibly could. Like, I really think this is, uh, as far as high level matchups go, arguably the most favorable one for him. Because mm -hmm. he the amount of pressure he can put on Oliveira on the ground the ease with which he just flicks off submission attempts and is nigh impossible to sweep. Um, that's just not going to be fun for Chucky. But to this day, I would pick Benil Dariush to beat Anth uh, uh, Alexander Hernandez 10 times out of 10. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would right? absolutely... He, ha he literally has like the one key you need to beat Hernandez, which is like... You let him come at you, you respond with a counter, and then you run his ass down. Yep. Benil does that in every fight, and 
yeah, I would pick him every day of the week. And what happened was he got knocked out cold almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that or, to me, you know, you would even pick him to beat, uh, to beat, uh, Ramsey Barboza seven times out of 10. Yeah. He was winning that fight or certainly Ramsey Nijim, the other guy who knocked yeah. him out. Ramsey was, uh, not a better fighter than Benil even at the time. Yeah. Um, people just catch him and, and he gets hit flush and he does not have a Justin Gaethje level chin. And even that was not proof against the clean, powerful shots that Oliveira was able to land. Yeah. Like, let's not forget Gaethje hurt him first, but he hurt Gaethje bad more than yeah. once. I mean, like, like the kind of fight that Benil Dariush is going to have with Oliveira is a fight that Charles Oliveira also thrives in. Yeah. So at, at least the, the version of that fight that takes place on the feet, 100%. Yeah. 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 yeah I just think the it, it's, you can't overlook how important Oliveira's supposedly poisonous guard game. And I, when I say this, I'm not saying the guy isn't dangerous, like falling to the no. ground. Yes. You are walking into some risky territory. Yeah. Uh, but that, that, of course, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't take a calculated risk when it's going to give you an advantage uh, as the fight goes on. More people should have done that mm -hmm. uh, during his run to the title and his brief title reign. More people should have been like, what if I get on top of you and punch you in the face and you just don't armbar me? Yeah. Um, <sighs> yeah, I think I'm going to take. You just can't ignore how essential that dynamic was to him winning all these wars. Yeah. Uh... That, I'm, I'm taking Benio. I mean, no question. Like, yes, the, yeah. chance, of, the chance of Chucky KOing him. Is very high. He could even possibly just surprise him with a submission. I mean, Michael, Michael Chiesa, Chiesa. Yeah, Michael Chiesa. Yeah, is, was a bigger man than Dariush and a phenomenal back taker, a back take specialist. Um, but obviously, it's possible. And it's not like Charles Oliveira is not a back take specialist. Yeah, absolutely. You're 100% correct. You know, if ever there's a dude who knows how to body lock somebody and be on their back by the time he's thrown yeah. them to the mat, it's Charles Oliveira. 100%. But Darius's um, wrestling and grappling are, yeah, I mean, most of the time just ironclad. That is the thing about Benil Darius is that literally every fight he's lost, I would pick him to win. Yeah, he's a good fighter. <laughs> yeah, for all his flaws and all his messiness, he is a comprehensively well-rounded, solid, dangerous fighter. Yeah, and the same uh, could be said of, of Charles Oliveira. Like half the fights he's ever lost, I would pick him to win. You know, like Ricardo Lamas. I'd pick Charles Oliveira to beat Ricardo Lamas and Paul Felder. I would still pick have picked Charles Oliveira to beat Paul Felder. You know? Um, yeah, probably that one. Cubs I don't Swanson? I don't know about Lamas. I might have picked Lamas to beat Oliveira all the time, but Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, the the point stands. I mean The point stands that both of these guys have shown fallibility in fights that they should be well booked in. Yeah. I yeah, I guess I'll go Dariush. The biggest thing just being that if he can really just scramble like crazy with Oliveira on the ground, I think he can get this fight into a place where he's more fit to win it as it goes. Yes, agreed. And, and that's he is, the, uh, the, the The defensive wrestling and scrambling he showed against Gamrot, but also the 
uh, the the scrambling he showed. I mean, it's not like Darius had an insanely chaotic first round with with Diego Ferreira, and then to the rest of that fight, he just demolished him on the ground. Let let me tell you though, I can so clear as day in my mind see Darius throwing two wild hooks, getting collar tied and uppercutted. Yeah. Or need, yes. Or and then need, yeah. And absolutely just annihilated by that. Like, yeah, it is right there in my mind. Yep. So. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're getting backed up to the cage and ducking into a knee. Yeah. Literally, what Barboza did to him, Chucky yep. can do that for sure. Just getting put on the end of a combination, eating a big left hook, like Michael Chandler did, one hundred percent. Yeah, that is that the chaos factor of Charles Oliveira as ever uh, is a huge part of what makes this fight so fascinating, because without that, like like I said, Benil Dariush all day. I think I mean, he the just fun has thing a is stylistic really, advantage. You know what the, the, the fun thing really is about this fight is that you can tell unquestionably, absolutely. that these are two, you know. This is the value of it, I'll say. And I, I hate to do this because it's, it's an advertisement for brain damage. Mm. But these are two men who have absolutely learned, honed, and kept their craft through regular hard sparring. Oh, no, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Hard sparring is important. No, I know, but like... Like, they, they, they make it a, a cornerstone of who they are and what taught them to fight. Yeah. And it's, it is, you know, we're, it's something that the industry, the, the MMA in general is eschewing more and more. Yeah. And for, for good reason, because there was a, this is a sport that used to do way too much of it. That used to be, that used to see that as the only training really. Sure. So it needs to be dialed back. But both Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush are reminders of why it is good yeah. for long stretches. Is because like these are two people that you can put them in the worst war that they could possibly have, and they are always focused. Yeah, they are. They neither of them will fall to pieces just because things go wrong. And it did not used to be at all true of Charles Oliveira. No. Yeah, he literally hard sparring and hard fighting. He had to develop that ability. I still think you can put him in a position like Makachev did where he starts to crumble, but you have to beat him a lot more comprehensively. It's not just the first sign of pushback, obviously, because, yeah. as you said, he gets knocked down and hurt in all of these fights and he still wins most of them. Mm -hmm. Like it, It's a testament to just like what it is to have, you know, and these are gym war camps. Yeah, MMA, you know, you got shoot a box, you got King's MMA. Of course. Like these are gym war camps and you can see what it comes out in the fighters. And it's people that are focused, driven, like guys who aren't that dirt. This is a real testament. Guys who are not that durable, yeah. who are absolutely capable of going to war and beating somebody like, just engagey in a punching match. Yeah. You know? And that's training. Like, that is actually just years of hard training. Yep. It's cool, honestly. It's a great fight. Yeah. Yeah. Charles like Oliveira opened it plus. Sorry. No, no, please. We're done. 
Charles Oliveira opened at plus 115, currently plus 123. Benil Dariush opened at minus 127, currently at minus 136. And that'll do it for this uh, UFC 289 yeah. main card. <laughs> yeah, it's all prelim, so we'll be... <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with an extra long, unfortunately, an extra long prelims, Vivi. Yeah. No, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, first prelim... Mike Malott, Adam Fujit, and yeah, the, the featured prelim, extra featured prelim, extra featured prelim. Uh, this is you. Take take it take it away. I was just waiting because you said what? and. I thought you had a point to lead us in. No, no, I was just gonna complain. <laughs> take it away, light it on fire. <laughs> All right. Well, it's Mike Malott who is yeah. a fun fighter. Yep. Um. A really uh, like reckless, but nonetheless technically sound kickboxer. Mm-hmm. Really built in that uh, Borshov mob. That is ex- exactly the comparison I was going to make. Yeah, like this is not a guy who uh, places a great emphasis on defense. No. Or he let's put it this way: I think he has some defensive skill. He is the opposite of risk averse. Yeah, that is just his nature. He is a an aggressively minded fighter. And if that means walking in there and having some crazy trades or giving up an easy takedown, cause he's planting his feet and trying to throw, he is willing to accept that. Um, it, it boggled my mind. The first time I found out he was a striking coach. Right. And it, it makes a lot more sense now having watched him fight more, but I'm still, it's still one of those things of like, what are you coaching people to do? I want to know. Cause yeah, I mean, I think technically you can, you can see it. You're like, this yeah. guy can probably teach some really solid fundamentals. It is just stylistically. He's a madman. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no safety in his game. That's yeah. And, and um, the weird thing is too, much like for often very, very little emphasis on range tools. That's true. Yeah. Like, we'll just step right in there and put hooks and uppercuts together. Yeah. Like Mike Malott's his, his striking game is all built around pocket boxing. Yeah. Um, and then he's taking on Adam Puget, who is a guy. Yeah. Uh, one of many in the modern UFC, just a guy, yeah. uh, nothing particularly notable, honestly, about Adam Puget's game. You know, he's pretty hard nosed, like, uh, certainly he is a natural fighter, mentally speaking. He went in there against a far superior but raw athlete in Michael Morales, and he fought his ass off, you know? like yeah. first I, I actually not... think that he's maybe, naturally speaking, not a natural fighter, but he has worked really, 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 really hard to make himself a natural fighter. Yeah, I mean, just mindset. I mean, he is he is just willing to walk into the fire, and when pushed, he will push right back. Like, he he's not yeah. a fighter who folds. No, but the big thing I keep noticing about Adam Fujit, which is why I'm disagreeing so much, is how, he reacts so poorly to getting hit. Oh, like, sure. His, he recomposes himself. He will yeah. force himself back into the fire. But every time he gets hit... Yeah, he gets shook up. Yeah, I think that's just because things constantly surprise him. Yeah, he doesn't. He can't tell when he's like in position to be hit and when he isn't. Yeah, 
He, he doesn't have a great sense of range. Like, he is just technically not much. That's why I say he's a guy. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know? Um, so, really, the question here is, like, can he out-wrestle Mike Malott? Yeah, that's really it. Because he's going to try. He is one of those classic MMA natives who he has to just do a little bit of everything or as much of everything as he can in every fight. And um, maybe, I mean, it's not like Malat can't wrestle, but he will put himself in situations where he needs to like find some desperate defensive wrestling. Yeah, being a guy who likes to punch in the pocket all the time, he yeah. doesn't keep himself just out of reach, you know? Yeah. That's- but he's gonna he's gonna have to wrestle, but it's not cost him. So no, far. he's he's actually a a pretty credible submission threat on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, solid scrambler. He's just as aggressive on the floor as he is on the feet, which helps. And and really, I'm gonna pick him largely because even though I suspect Fugit will take him down, um, I don't really trust Fugit to put together a game plan built entirely around that. Yeah, and I mean, like and to focus as much as he would need to on just keeping him down and staying tight and patient and just grinding it out. Like, it was not easy for him to get there against Kinoshita. No. And once he did, he absolutely wrecked Kinoshita. Yeah. But it should be much more challenging to get there with Mike Malott. Like, yeah. He is going he's to be eating. T- he's a much. team alpha male guy. He's spending time in the wrestling room. He knows how to scramble. Mm-hmm. He knows how to be defensive on the mat. He's like Kinoshita, once he got taken down, had no clue what to do at yeah. all. Yeah. Nobody had ever challenged him like that. Yeah. But as a uh, as an alpha male fighter, Adam Fugit would be officially the first to win a fight just with his wrestling. <laughs> like again, he's on the feet. It's going to be dangerous. Yeah. Um, and on the ground, I would need to have some reason to think he, again, could just game plan really narrowly to just try to take Malat down and stay super tight and give nothing away and just hold top position for as long as possible. And um, I, I don't even think that's going to be even if that was his game plan, I don't think it would be easy because, again, Malat is hyper-aggressive when yeah. he is taken down and will make things happen because he's so willing to attack. Yeah. Uh, so I- I'm taking Malat, no question. Yep. Yeah, I, I have the big thing for me is just how badly F- Fujit reacts to getting hit. That's, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. I mean, that, that almost... That should have cost him the fight against Kinoshita. If Kinoshita was at all more developed... He was just going out and walking Fujit down and blasting him. Yep. Easily you know? cornered him, easily hit him when he had him in that position. Yep. And every time he hits him, Fujit, like, he puts his hands way over his head. He turns away a little. Like, he just gets shook up every yep. time. Yep. And this was a huge problem against Morales, too, is that his body language when eating strikes is bad. Yeah, and it's the kind of body language that good strikers can build on, and I expect him a lot to be able to. Yep, he is just a mess technically. Yeah, uh, Malat is a solid favorite. Open at minus two hundred and minus two hundred one right now, so no real movement on that line. Fujit open at plus one seventy seven, currently plus one seventy eight. 
All right. That takes us to a featherweight bout. Dan Ige, Nate Landwehr. And uh, cool fight, fun fight. I, I, it's really weird to me how um, how good Nate Landwehr has been. Like, how many good chances and good bookings he's gotten in the UFC? Mm-hmm. Like, for a guy who walked in and got immediately knocked out by Herbert Burns... Yep. And then had a sloppy wild fight with Darren Elkins that a lot of people thought he lost. And then got Julian Arosa by Julian Arosa himself. Arosa. Yeah. <laughs> like then that's they not, we... that's, that's not how the first round knockout is supposed to go against Julian Arosa. Yeah. Wrong guy. And then they book him against Ludovic Klein. Fun fight. He wins that. Book him against David Onama. Fun fight. He wins that. Book him Absolute against... chaos, yeah. Booked him against Alex Caceres. Caceres dropped out. He got Austin Lingo. And now booking him against Dan Ige. Like, yeah. These are all, they're all fun fights. Even the ones he's lost, they're, they're almost all fights that are made for uh, Nate Landwehr to, like, have fun and success. It's kind yeah. of like. That, that's what he's all about. I mean, you. It's not all the matchmaking. Nate Landwehr is a fun fighter. That is his emphasis. I'm just saying that, like, it's cool to see him get continually good fights to show that off. Yeah, yeah. You know? And because I don't, I'm not going to pick Nate, but I guess long story short, I'm not going to pick Nate Landwehr to win this fight. No. Uh, This is a very, but it is a fun fight for him to try to win. Because Dan Ige has problems moderating his pace. And uh, is not averse to getting hit because most of his offense is, you know, if we're talking like Mike Malott, most of his offense is predicated around punching in the pocket. Yeah. He's a fighter who will very rarely, and, you know, part of that is just, I think Ige's always been the shorter guy, probably even before he got to the UFC at five foot seven as a, yeah. as a featherweight. He could, just, he could, he looks like he could very easily be a bantamweight. Yeah. And so he, you know, he's used to get in the pocket, punch up, be, be the Mike Tyson in, yeah. in, in the fight. And he's getting better at it. You know, mm-hmm. he's been getting better this whole time. It was very vindicating to see that performance against Damon Jackson. Yep. Yeah, just because you always worry, uh, we always worry that we're overrating a guy for looking good in a loss. Yeah, and Ige had had a lot of those against like the best dudes in the division. He kept narrowly losing these fights, but you still could not help but be impressed by a lot of the stuff he did. Yeah, and he gets somebody who's not on that level and just wipes the floor with him. And you're like, exactly. oh, okay, Dan Ige has in fact been turning into a pretty rock solid fighter this whole time. Yeah. He's better at picking his moments, getting into the pocket and getting out in a hurry, not throwing, you know, two hooks and then kind of watching his work and getting caught on counter. Good natural counter puncher. Good Um, natural counter puncher doing a little better chaining up and like shifting his, his, uh, his style to, you know, duck in on a takedown every now and then, but not making it, the relentless center point of his game for a whole round or two. 
Mm-hmm. Like he yeah. used to work in the body. I mean, he did that yeah. brilliantly, especially against Jackson, but he was building yep. towards that. And all of this comfort too, um, and taking out that sort of the desperation that used to come with his need to grapple people. Yeah. Uh, has meant that a guy who seemed like he was just chronically gassed throughout his career has kind of gotten over that. Yeah. Um, and then, so, you know, on the other hand, you've got Nate Landwehr, who is, he, it, it, I don't even know that it's, that he's not technically adept enough. He's certainly no kind of technical master. His, his punching form can be pretty nice it it can be pretty nice but it is weird to see a fighter who just like momentum is built into their personality and not their style (laughs) you know where it's not like oh yeah no he starts out and he's like throwing popping a jab popping some low kicks seeing what your reactions are and as the fight goes on starting to build off of those things it's like nate landwehr lays no groundwork but it will just like stack bricks as the yeah. fight goes on. And suddenly by like third round, you're like, man, you, you've got something going, you've got your opponent reeling and you are confident. And that is just letting you do more work. Yeah. And it makes them a hell of a lot of fun. Always. But it's almost like it feels almost accidental when like he actually does build to something because yeah, he, he, he is not in there fighting to a plan ever. The plan no. is to have a cool fight. Yeah. That was very, very clear in his fight with David Onama, where he literally yes. like let clear winning chances go in order to like play to the crowd and just look cool, which respect. We like to see that, but <laughs> it's uh, he is not a professional fighter. Yeah. In the and way so, that like, Danny Gay is. He has a fight with Austin Lingo, too. And it's just like one round of going 50 50 with Austin Lingo. And then being like, oh, yeah, no, I'm like twice as fast as this guy. Maybe I should just win the fight. Yeah. You know. But he's not twice as fast as Danny Gay. No, he is not. So I, yeah, I got to pick Danny. I think he's just going to have a lot of opportunities in the middle of, a, of Nate Landwehr trying to have a very fun, wild, cool brawl. Yep. And it should and... lead for a pretty cool fight. But like I say, it's, you know, it is kind of weird to see, like for me to see Landwehr not get like booked into a corner at all. True. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I'm, I'm happy to have him here, man. He is. Yeah. He has been a super exciting fighter his entire career. So absolutely. Um, and he is not backing down from that. He's not pulling a Michelle Pereira, at least not yet. No, no, I don't. And I don't think he ever will. I don't think he. You never know. You never know what, what persuades a, a wild man to become capital T technical. But so it's far, true. there's no sign of that. <laughs> not yeah. at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Danny Gay is too good a counterpuncher too fast. Um, but also just technically a really sound fighter who will have many, many chances to capitalize on Nate Landwehr's mistakes and his over-aggression. Yep. Uh, I think he will probably have plenty of opportunities to find his takedowns as well. Landwehr, especially when he's on the attack, is not really any big shakes at stopping takedowns. No. Um, He's uh, single-minded and even then maybe half-minded. Yeah, and even in utter chaos, which this fight may devolve into at some point, like 
Uh, Damon Jackson couldn't do it, but I feel like, I don't know, Nate Landwehr is a little more coordinated in chaos than Damon Jackson. Jackson, like, needs to be pressuring and winning, I think. Yeah, well, Jackson is, unfortunately for him, because he has every bit as much will and psychopathy as somebody like Nate Landwehr. Yes. Jackson is a minus athlete who is making it work at a pretty high level on willpower alone. Yeah. Landwehr is not a bad is is an average athlete with that same kind of willpower. Right. Um, Yeah. So there's just a lot more like sort of fluidity and uh, I, I don't know, like, uh, again, Jackson is he he needs to build like a head of steam, I think, mm-hmm. to win those chaotic fights. And Landwehr will just continue thriving in the chaos for as long as it lasts. But mm-hmm. even given that, you cannot ignore the fact that Dan Ige has one of MMA's best chins. Yeah. So like even all goes to shit. You got to kind of trust Dan Ige to be able to weather that even if his defense uh, gets broken through by just sheer chaos. This dude has taken massive shots from Josh Emmett and Calvin Cater and Chan Sung Jung, all huge punchers, and rarely even shown a sign of being affected. Yeah, whereas on the other side, Nate Landwehr can also just be totally caught cold and yeah. knocked out in the beginning of the fight when he's just trying to create chaos with no flag. It's it's watching somebody build, build a house without laying a foundation. Like, yeah, that is the Nate Landwehr game is you're like, you know, if you get to round three, you might have what looks like a, a pretty cool house going. But if you go back <laughs> and you try like, you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. There's bricks there. I see it. But you go back to the beginning. And if you tried to buy that house, you're like, Oh, I want the Nate Landwehr instructional tapes. <laughs> you'd be like, okay, just go nuts. Yeah. This isn't going to pass a uh, inspection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. A convoluted metaphor, but I get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. You, you got to, you got to take Danny Gay. You do. Ige is the favorite opened at minus two, 224 is currently at minus 245. Landware opened at, Plus 195, currently a plus 213. So, odds slowly getting wider. I'm not surprised. Ige had that slide, but you really got to look at the people he was fighting in that slide. And then how much he dominated dudes like Gavin Tucker and Damon Jackson, who are both really honestly quite reasonable featherweights. Even if we say like Damon Jackson, kind of a minus athlete, Damon Jackson wins a lot of fights. He's a tough dude to... For sure. To beat. Yeah. You know, and, he and has I think the willpower a, of an elite fighter. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it's a huge credit to Dan Ige that all of these just relentlessly tough matchmaking, a couple of easier matchups in there, but just fighting beast after beast. And that's got to be incredibly disheartening. Oh, yeah. No. To just run up against the top of the division again and again. And despite all, through all that time, Dan Ige was doing what we want fighters to do. He was improving the technical aspects of his game. Uh, and well, not, it, no, well, not breaking his game, not taking out any of the stuff that worked. Yeah. He was just, he tuned it all up and he, he, he now looks like an extremely solid fighter who I think uh, for some time yet may be sitting right there on the cusp of like the top five, if not potentially breaking through someday. I mean, you never know the guy has improved and 
you, uh, you get up into the into the top ten, and any three fight winning streak could put you in yeah. title contention. You know. Yeah, you never know. All right, that takes us to a middleweight fight. One of the most middleweight middleweight. I like they're all the most middleweight middleweight fights, but yeah, this that's, one is two that's... dudes that absolutely typify this division: Eric Anders, Mark Andre Barrio. Yep. And uh, you, you know, know, okay. So here's the question, Connor. Okay, all right. Has Eric Anders improved enough to win the fight he might have won anyway before Mark Andre Barrio improved. <laughs> Hold on, break that down for me. So Mark <laughs> Andre Barrio Mark Andre Barrio has clearly improved lately. Yeah. The big thing being he actually puts together volume and combinations true so that he can have a fight against uh julian marquez, julian marquez yeah where marquez goes to war and finds himself unable to at all meet and match barrio's pace so that yeah. despite how hard marquez is throwing and brawling he is just getting steadily outworked to the point that he falls to pieces that is not who Mark Andre Barrio was in his swinging cling days when he was losing to Christoph Yatko and Andrew San when he lost Andrew Sanchez. Like, yeah, if yeah. ever a style was going to work against somebody, Andrew yeah. Sanchez was the dude. Eric Anders, though, ha Eric Anders has seemed like he has barely been improving at all for years. But he probably could have beat Mark Andrea on. Or he probably could have beat Barrio back in the day when Barrio was just a swinging clean guy, off of pure athleticism. Maybe, debatable. Yeah, maybe. But Anders is actually finally able to throw three punches at a time now. He looked. I mean, I was shocked by his performance against Kyle Dacus, a fight at yes. which. He did not need to do all that. No. <laughs> he could have. That's one definitely where he could have been Eric Anders classic and just sort of tripped his way into a win. So I'm saying Eric Anders classic absolutely could not beat Mark Andre Barrio right now. Yeah. But are we convinced enough that the new Eric Anders is solid enough that then now being insanely uh, an insanely better athlete than Barrio? is going to push him over the top in this fight where insanely more athletic than Barrio. Yeah, he is. I suppose so. I suppose it just hasn't always come through. Like it, doesn't, it hasn't come through because he, he jumped into, he, he was, a, he was a standout college fullback who jumped into MMA with no, basically no training. Yeah. And has spent all of this time learning how to start. But it's always been a thing where, like, you see somebody shoot on Eric Anders, and it's always clear, like, oh, yeah, this dude is just insanely strong. Yeah. Oh, strong, no doubt. Yeah. It, it, I suppose it's the sort of the other elements of what we think of uh, as athleticism that have not always come through. Yeah, like, the, the, stri the coordination of his striking has taken right. been so cumbersome to get along 
that it I I understand fully why it's easy to overlook and be like, yeah, yeah. what what do you mean, Eric Anderson? You don't expect a great athlete to to look that awkward moving around and and putting yeah. strikes together. Yeah. Um, but then he, you know, I think over the long, like suddenly you get a fight like the Dowcast fight, and it's like, oh, yeah, okay, like what can Dowcast even do here? You know. Yeah, I mean, there was still moments in the very early going where Dawkins was putting all that volume out there and doing his thing, trying to mix it up, trying to do a bit of everything. And, um, yeah, like, I think Anders is still, by nature, just a slow starter. Mm-hmm. He kind of just let Dawkins get some work off. He was kind of stumbling around, playing too much defense. And I guess he just got bored of it and was like, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to put my jab in your face. I'm going to put combinations on you. I'm going to kick the shit out of your legs. Um, and every time you try to tie up with me, I am literally just going to fling you to the ground. Like, yeah, uh, it was really like somebody had picked Dacus up and just smacked him on Eric Anders. Yeah. And... Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It looked like, uh, that scene in the two towers when the ants are, uh, using orcs to hit other orcs. Yeah. Yeah. It looked like an ant had swung <laughs> Kyle Dacus into Eric Anders <laughs> as a sort of projectile. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it is still a question. I mean, it is. I, I, I have been quite impressed with Mark Andre Barrio as well. Yeah, like I, he's improved much more quickly in yeah. a much more natural way than Eric Anders, who has had to struggle mightily every step of the way to claw this tech. This the technical improvement. Like I said, now it's like he puts three punches together. That is like. That's it, yeah. You know, that is core Eric Anders' skill growth. Yeah. But he has, he does still seem to have a higher physical ceiling than, than Barrio. Yeah. <sighs> I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's not as easy to call as I, as I think I, I thought it was coming in. Yeah. I think I remember that Eric Anders' performance, and I was so impressed. I was like, finally, this dude has learned to fight. Mm-hmm. Finally, he looks fluid. He is putting his jab out there. He is seeing the openings that creates and then capitalizing on them. Um, in the tie-ups, too, like there was just a lot of fluidity to Andrew striking that was missing before. There was one exchange in that uh, Dawkins fight where like he, he came in with a one-two, I think, and they kind of crashed together. And he used a collar tie and just yanked Dawkins around and then hit him as he was recovering his balance with like two or three short, powerful punches. Very accurate. That is that was not present before. Yeah. There's yeah. clearly a new level of comfort uh, that has come from a, a, you know, just the slightest improvement in, in, in technique. The fir- basically the first steps of fighting yeah. technique that he was just missing this whole time. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm probably still going to pick Anders like... Julian Marquez was able to push Barrio back to the fence. He was able to hit him with shots. He is just such an absolute unstructured mess um, that he couldn't, like, actually gain any kind of ground on Barrio and hold it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I, I, you know, it'd be more interesting from both of these guys than it would have been at various other points in their careers because Barrio can move and jab and put combinations together himself. He's certainly not going to get flung around in the clinches as easily as a guy like Dawkins did. Yeah. Barrio's a big, strong fighter in his own right. Um, so I think it'll be interesting, actually. I'm, I'm, you know, the more we talk about it, I, I kind of like this matchup. Yeah, it's a good it's a good fight. I, it's honestly to me, you know, these are both dudes who have struggled a lot to put their games together. For for Barrio, it's a question of you know being. I think he was used to always being the way better athlete yeah. when he was on the regionals. Yeah, he and then he gets the UFC. People. He gets the UFC, and suddenly, like, he's fifty fifty with everybody. Right. If he if could... not even at a slight deficit with with some opponents. Right. And yeah, suddenly definitely this... a, an iron sharpens iron thing for Barrio. The thing that is missing, yeah. for example, from Amanda Nunez's career. Yeah. And he so, had to get better. Yeah. He had to get better. His slow, his slow paced swinging clean game where he expected to just like trap people on the, ke- the fence and hold them there and then like back off and land a couple shots and then go back in. Like he, he just couldn't do it. And he lost a bunch of fights and he has slowly picked his output up. And become, you know, leaned heavier on his durability to, uh, you know, to to overcome that. And then for Anders, it was just like, okay, here you are. You're a physical phenom. You're a physical beast. And you basically don't know how to fight at all. Yeah. And we've just watched him go through the process of very slowly learning how to turn his physicality into offense. It's not even clear that there was a process. It's yeah. like it just yeah. suddenly happened. Right? Like yeah. I haven't seen a lot of a lot of little steps along the way, really. I mean, the thing is, I would say around the Gerald Mearshart fight that he barely won. Yeah. That was the first moment that uh I saw Anders start to put two strikes together. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Where he would throw like a jab and a right hand behind it sometimes. And, you know, then he went out and lost to Kristoff Yatko immediately. And then, you know, he beats Andre Mooney, or he loses to Andre Mooney's via out getting out grappled. That's no surprise. And so, like, the Jun Young Park fight, that's another one where he's like, Jun Young Park is just a little, you know, he's a busier, more durable, more relentless, faster striker than Mearshart. And he can't quite get over the hump against Jun Young Park with one twos. He probably should have won that fight, though. Maybe should have. I'm glad he didn't, but he maybe should have. Yeah, certainly was close enough. It could have gone either way. Could have gone either way. And so then with Dachau, suddenly here he is, one, two, three. And that's clearly like the missing ingredient. You know, the, it's been the three, <laughs> the three. It's been a slow process to get there, but I, I think it's. I have been seeing it happen. It's just that it's so like going yeah. from that Leota Machida fight where it was literally, oh my god, you barely can barely get yourself to throw one punch. Oh my god! What about the Tiago Santos fight? Yeah, this, like, literally, you're not wrong. Like, literally, the guy did not know how to fight. Yeah. When he got to the UFC. Yeah. 
they, you know, and yet, like, not knowing how to fight was enough to beat Brendan Allen in LFA. Right. And Rafael Nadal in his, Natal in his debut. And, yeah. like, these guys are not bad fighters. No, not at all. Yeah, that just, I, that does speak to his just yeah. raw physicality. So it's just been a long, it's been a long, slow process of like, yeah, I think, I think I'm going to pick Anders here. Yeah, me too. The danger, the strength, Barrio, even volume Barrio is still not a a power puncher, really. And Anders is looking heavier and heavier handed as he figures this stuff out. Yep. He just and, looks a lot snappier on his punches, too. Yeah. And Barrio's not the kind of wrestler that I think can drag on Anders into a exhausting wrestling match. Because you really have to actually be a good wrestler to get Anders off of his feet. Or like a good athlete to get Anders off of his feet. Maybe not the most technical wrestler, but like I was saying, with the Kyle Daukaus, it look, looking like he got like thrown at Anders. Right. He would try. Daukhaus is not a bad technical shot wrestler, but he would shoot in and it would just be like. Yeah, it was like a bird hitting a window. <laughs> yeah. Bonk. What was that sound? Oh, Kyle yeah. Suddenly Daukhaus is back at range and like his nose is broken and his face is bloody. And you're like, <laughs> why? How? Oh, that it was that quarter sprawl from Eric Anders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anders is a slight underdog here, opened at plus 119. He's currently at plus 116. Barrio opened at minus 132, currently minus 128. Eh, I, you know, it should be 50-50 to me, honestly. Yeah, I agree. These are two guys who are learning and growing slowly. Anders has a higher physical ceiling, but he started with less technical tools even. So. Yep. All right. Good fight. I didn't expect to be looking forward to this one. I'm going to be honest, but uh, yeah. it actually is a pretty compelling matchup. All right. On that note, for the rest of you loyal Substack people who are helping out Bloody Elbow and uh, fighting the good fight with us, we got a little bonus com- content coming to you j- in just a moment. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, Go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcast and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey, Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection Main Card and Prelims UFC Preview Shows, the Sixth Round Post-Fight Show, the Show Money Podcast, and the MMA Depressed Us. <laughs> 